You know, I thought of this this morning at 8 o'clock, at the 8 o'clock liturgy, uh, after the first, at the end of the first reading from 1 Kings, we read, Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. I will bring disaster on you. Whereupon the reader says, the word of the Lord, and everybody in the congregation says, thanks be to God. (laughs) I'm going to preach on 1 Kings and on the reading from Galatians. Uh, 1 Kings is important uh, as a good story, but it also has something to do with the the whole idea of the continuity of uh, the importance of God's justice and equity and how Jesus and the New Testament church will take on this uh, central piece to their self-understanding about the vocation of Christian people because Elijah is a prophet who is talking about um, justice and equity. Uh, For the last two weeks, I've also talked a bit about the lectionary and what it is we're going to be reading uh, this year uh, in cycle C. And we're hearing in the Old Testament from the prophets in 1 Kings, 2 Kings. We're going to be reading from Isaiah. And so we'll hear about the prophetic witness of the church and its importance. And then from the epistles, we're going to read as we are from Galatians and then Colossians, and then the letter to the Hebrews, and incidentally some of the other uh, epistles in the New Testament. And then, of course, the linchpin is which gospel do we read in each year, and it's our patron this year, St. Luke. So let me say something about First Kings. Father Emerson and I were talking uh, before the liturgy about Uh, One of the unfortunate things about the Revised Common Lectionary is that it jumps around a little. So we're not going to get the benefit of reading the story of Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel as a continuous narrative. So we won't get to read how Jezebel gets her comeuppance. (laughs) Because she does. And it's a good story and a good read. Today we have... Uh, Elijah, well, we'll leave Elijah alone for a minute and we'll tell the story that leads up to this. Nabob is uh, the neighbor of King Ahab in Samaria and he owns a vineyard and King Ahab wants the land for a vegetable garden for himself. So he says to Nabob, let me have your vineyard. I'll trade you uh, uh, for even an even better vineyard or if you don't want that, I'll pay you the cash so that I can have this vegetable garden right near me. And uh, Naboth says, no, this is my ancestral inheritance, and it's not for sale, and I'm not going to do that. So Ahab gets into a blue funk, and he goes home and lays down on his bed, and he turns his face to the wall, and he won't eat. And Jezebel comes in and says, oh, sweetheart, why does not matter? Why don't you snap out of it? Why don't you do this? No, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. And so Ahab, of course, as many men do, rely on his wife Jezebel's overfunctioning. <laughs> and 
And she said, I'll take care of it. You bring Naboth to a banquet and you get two scoundrels to sit next to him. And in front of the king, you accuse him of cursing the king and cursing God. And they do. And of course, he gets sentenced to be stoned. And they take him out and kill him. And Ahab takes possession of the vineyard. So Elijah, the Rambo of the Old Testament, hears about it. And he goes down there and he confronts Ahab and he tells them that there's going to be big trouble and plenty of it. Now Elijah and his successor, Elisha, are the heralds of justice and equity in Israel. And these prophets and Isaiah and others are going to be looked upon by the people of the covenant as the heralds of how we should live in light of this relationship that we have with God in the covenant. And so their responsibility, their job is to call everybody else to responsibility about the issues of justice and equity. And so today we read about three themes that are important and that Elijah is talking about. The injustice of manipulating the judicial system and the denial of due process. Does that sound familiar? The violation of distributive justice by taking more than they need and depriving Naboth of his most basic right, which is his life. Where do you think we get this stuff from? The violation of the substance of justice which rests on the character of Israel's God as just. Now we read this because the people who follow Jesus are going to see him and hear him. And they're going to say to themselves, we have embodied in this person not only the words and works of God, we have embodied all of the great tradition of Israel about the issues of justice and equity and a reminder that each one of us in big and small ways needs to reflect that back to the world. What is talked about today in 1 Kings are some of the things that Gentiles who we call proselytes in this particular case, found compelling about Judaism. And they hung around the edges during the time of Elijah, but certainly after that, during the time of Jesus, around Judaism because they were taken by their, ish, their uh, commitment to social justice and equity, by their commitment to the integrity of human beings. The only difference was they didn't go the whole way. Males didn't get circumcised and they didn't keep the dietary laws or keep the Sabbath. But they were still there. And it is this constituency that we're talking about in the reading from Galatians today. The people mainly who have been aware of Judaism, but now believe in Christ. Like a number of Jews who also believe in Christ. And Paul is at pains to explain what is going on. The lectionary does something that I wish it hadn't. I wish this week we would have read the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, because that's where uh, Paul speaks about Peter, Cephas, coming into Antioch, which was Paul's base of operations, coming into Antioch and being with Paul and sitting down and eating with the Gentiles. 
And when James and some of the other Jerusalem apostles come to Antioch, Peter stops doing it. And people like Barnabas are uh, taken in by this, and they step away from eating with the Gentiles. And so when we're talking about justification by faith, the first time it comes up in the New Testament is over who should we be able to eat with? Who is in and who is out? And Paul publicly rebukes Peter and says in so many words that this is hypocritical of you to do this. So it raises the whole question of what Paul is talking about today and a little bit before from verses 1 through 11. And that is, what do you have to do to be in? You have to have belief in Christ. If you are a Jew, what do you have to do to be in? You have to believe in Christ. What if you are a Gentile, what do you have to do? You have to believe in Christ. And that moment is the moment that you are reckoned as righteous by God. Alright, so how does that work? As N.T. Wright would say, how do you do this from cold? The message of Jesus Christ crucified, risen and coming is now preached. And Gentiles hear this and because they're influenced by the Greek worldview, say this is foolishness, absolute foolishness. And if you are a Jew, you say this is a scandal to suggest such a thing. But the more you hear the message, you become convinced, as Paul did, that it's true. And when you do that, you are justified. It is a very small, narrow moment. You are declared righteous before God. So that means that Gentiles are in, and it means that Jews are in. Gentiles do not have to keep the law. They believe in Christ. Jews who may keep the law, if they want, are in because they believe in Christ, not because they keep the law. And remember, I've said this to you before, what is a Gentile? In the Greek New Testament, a Gentile is called ethnos, those people. Okay? Those people. It's where we get ethnic from, obviously. So those people are in, and that means we all belong together at the same table. In Romans, Paul says at the end of chapter 3, Or, is God the God of the Jews only? Or of the Gentiles also? Because if the answer is, Yes, God's the God of the Gentiles. That means that at the very best, the Gentiles are second-class Christians. And he has concluded that that is not right, and, that is, and also not so. 
So here today we have Paul laying out for people what the purpose of this process of justification is. It isn't some idea of just me and God doing this. It's you believing in Christ and by virtue of that, you now live into the promises you are in. And how would Paul understand what that meant for a Gentile as well as a Jew? Well, it might mean that through your baptism, you now have given to you the fruits of the Spirit. God's Spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you so that you find that it is easier for you to express love, joy, kindness, peace, gentleness, self-control, among other things. And more to the point, you find yourself able to commend that to other people and to try to bring this to every relationship in which you're, to, it, that you're involved in. So this is somehow the processes that are involved in this. And it's important, extremely important, to understand that. The Protestant reformers were, gave the correct answer to the wrong question. And what all the new perspective on Paul has done for the last 33 years is to say, you know what we really ought to be interested in? Not what Martin Luther was interested in and not what John Calvin was interested in. They had a, they had a beef with the medieval church. Paul didn't know anything about the medieval church. He was a first century Jew. And so maybe it's important for us to understand what Jews thought about the processes of God's justifying work in the world. Because for Paul, when you are justified through your belief in Christ, that means you're declared not guilty. It has absolutely nothing to do with your character. It's like in a court today. You can be the biggest jerk in the world. If you're not guilty, you're not guilty. It says nothing about your moral character. And the same thing is true with justification. Diakosuni theo, to be made righteous in God, in Christ. And that's what Paul is speaking of today. He's going to talk about this in Romans big time and in other places. But this is the first place that he comes to terms with this because he's concerned about who's in and who's out. My own feeling is, is that Christian people have to, we have to encounter this on a regular basis because we become completely uh, unclear about it continuously. Who's in and who's out? Who gets to be in and who's supposed to be out? So we're concerned about a big tent that everybody comes in. And Paul looks at his own sacred literature like Isaiah and other places and he says, you know what? This we can see here, that God's invitation has been made right along. And that's the thing that we need to be about as, as a people. We need to say, come in. Everybody is invited into God's saving embrace. The woman anointing Jesus' feet is demonstrating gratitude for being justified. And so in the Lucan church, which was 40 years after the writing of Galatians, we begin to see in some sense this operating in the life of faithful people. And so we see, well, how does it play itself out? It plays itself out by inviting everyone to come in.
So this week, give thanks for being in. Give thanks for being justified. Now we enter into the process of sanctification. Somebody said years ago in a lecture that I heard, Episcopalians are really good at sanctification. They're not very good with conversion. So our project is always to be better at conversion, the change, the movement, the direction now, uh, turning towards God, commending that to other people, understanding with greater clarity what our purpose is for God's plan for the cosmos. And each one of us has a plan. So give thanks for being part of that and give thanks for being justified through belief in Christ. Amen.